All right. Good morning, friends. My name is Hunter. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, I'd love to do so at some point after service. Uh, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids, Kid City, to their classrooms. If you're in grades kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head out to the lobby and meet your teacher there. Everybody doing well today? Come on. Good to see you. Thank you, Hudson. I love you as well. Uh, I uh, have the honor and privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning, and I just want to take a second to give honor where honor is due and thank the elder team for entrusting me with this responsibility. It's not something I take lightly, so thank you so much. Um, as the kids are heading out, I thought we'd get things started this morning by having a little fun and play a game today. We're going to play Two Truths and a Lie. Two truths and a lie. Raise your hand if you played this game before. Okay, most of you, if you've not played it before, don't worry. Super simple. You will catch on very quickly. Uh, basically, the way this works is, is I'm going to say three statements, uh, two of which are true, and then one of which is a lie. And uh, as I say these statements, you have to determine to yourself, which one do you think is not true about me? Make sense? Pretty simple. Two truths and a lie. So we'll go ahead and start this off. Statement number one, I was once an amateur magician. Statement number one. Statement number two, I once recorded a hip-hop album in college. Statement number two. Statement number three, I was once a high school champion in football. High school champion in football. Statement number one, I was once an amateur magician. Statement number two, I once recorded a hip-hop album in college. And statement number three, I was a state champion in high school football. All right, give you some time to think about it. Just sizing me up. All right, raise your hand. Statement number one, I was once an amateur magician. You think that is not true. You think that is a lie. Raise your hand. All right, all right, Joaquin, thank you. Uh, statement number two, I once recorded a hip-hop album in college. Raise your hand. I think that was a lie. All right, and then statement number three, I once was... Wow, okay. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I think it's how I pause. Like, it's kind of... Kind of gave it away because, yes, statement, statement number three, well done, uh, was my lie. Uh, no, the closest I ever got to athletic greatness was playing Coach Bolton in High School Musical. That's your boy. That's right. Wildcats everywhere. Wave your hands up in the air. Come on. Got to get your head in the game. If you want to bop to the top, you can bet on it that we are in it to win it. Okay. Uh, and then, believe it or not, I did record a hip-hop album in college. This was like the height of SoundCloud rappers, and I wanted to be one. And uh, so your boy recorded the hottest mixtape of 2014, Too Close for Comfort, Volume 1. That's right. Volume 2 never came. <laughs> but there wasn't quite the demand for it. But uh, that's all right. Life, uh, life is, your, is your greatest feedback. Uh, and then statement number three, I actually was an amateur magician for about a decade. And I use the word amateur because I did make magic off my money, uh, off, or did make money off my magic. Uh, man, y'all pray for me. Struggling today. Uh, yeah, I did make money off magic. Not a lot of money. Uh, that's me performing at my high or college. What am I trying to say? This is back in college. I was doing magic at our youth conference. I was pulling a string out of my eye. And so this morning, I actually would like, just kidding, <laughs> it's too early for that. That, that is gross. Uh, two, two truths and a lie. 
we are in a sermon series this month called Core Values, Restoring the Why Behind the What. And uh, our goal in this series is to kind of take a step back and look at what are we doing here as a church? Why are we committed to the things that we're committed to here at Providence Bible Church? Uh, a few weeks ago, we had our Agape Feast. Raise your hand if you were there for that. It was an incredible, absolutely amazing. Um, we got to worship together as one church with three expressions, multiple expressions, our multicultural service here at 10 a.m., our 1 o'clock Spanish-speaking service, Providencia, and then our 3.30 Swahili expression. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and that really put on full display our core value of the relational weave. Uh, this is this idea that uh, there's no significant change without a significant relationship. We are not ourselves by ourselves. We need one another in this life. And then two weeks ago, Emmanuel preached a great, great message on our core value of expensive love. In the weeks to come, leading up to Easter Sunday, we'll chat more about Redemptive Edge, All In, 4D, Deep Roots. It's going to be really, really great. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk to you about that third core value there, the core value of truth-telling. At Providence Bible Church, we define truth-telling like this. Because Jesus is the truth and because his truth sets us free, we believe in the power of telling the truth. This is more than mere honesty or integrity. Truth-telling means seeing God for who he is and seeing one another the way he sees us. We strive to cultivate an awareness of our ongoing need for the gospel by enthusiastically affirming the transformative work of God in our lives and also lovingly confronting one another when our lives do not align with the gospel. That's pretty good, huh? I love the truth of that statement. Uh, but sadly, we live in a time where truth is tough to come by. In a world of fake news, deep fakes, and artificial intelligence online, it can be quite difficult for us to discern uh, uh, what's real and what's false, what's reality and what's deception. And truth is not a popular topic either. In a quote-unquote post-truth culture, to even claim to know the truth is seen as nothing more than a power play. And then to impose that truth on another person, whoo, buddy, that is downright offensive. In a world of moral relativism, we say things like, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. So live your truth. Just don't tell me how to live mine. As modern society, we have an understandable difficulty in discerning the truth we have a profound allergy as well for anyone who would tell us what the truth should be. But confusingly enough, we also have this unique infatuation with uncovering lies. Just think of our love for so-called reality TV show. We like to see things unfiltered and on full display. Uh, or maybe our obsession with true crime podcasts or our fetish for expose documentaries that reveal the juicy details and drama of fallen celebrities from uh, Jerry Falwell to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, from companies like Hillsong to Facebook. In our cultural moment, abuse, hypocrisy, and scandal are quite literally well-documented like never before, and I thank God for that. <laughs> we need more of that. Seriously, I'm grateful for the good and much-needed course correction that has taken place in American culture by and large because of the much-needed movements of uh, Me Too and Church Too. 
We must tell the truth about the horrific spiritual, physical, sexual, and financial abuse that has taken place in our world today. And sadly, nowhere is such unveiling seemingly more necessary than in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sadly, the pillar and buttress of the truth has become a playground and bedroom for lies. But what I've begun to notice about cancel culture, as it's come to be called over the past few years, is that though our desire to expose the problems present in systems is effective, uh, quite effective, in fact, cancel culture is not so good at providing solutions for sinners. Cancel culture, call-out culture, whatever you want to call it, can uncover the toxicity present within a system or a group of people, but it rarely ever offers solutions or resources for healing the sickness within. And at Providence, that sort of bold, audacious commitment to the truth and an equally radical, expensive, category-defying love for all people affected by the truth or the lack thereof is what we want to be about as a church community. Because the gospel does not call us to anything less. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, I'd like to preach a message to you today called Truth-Telling for a Cancel Culture. Truth-telling for a cancel culture. And perhaps no passage of Scripture so vividly depicts the stunning contrast between a culture of lies and a community of truth than James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you did, please grab them and meet me in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I want to investigate and examine this topic of truth-telling in James chapter 3 through three questions, two kingdoms, and one big idea. Three questions, two kingdoms, and one big idea. The three questions that we'll ask of each kingdom are, number one, what's it like? Number two, what's its source? And number three, what is its outcome? These three questions will help us discern the truth or the lack thereof as it's found in these two separate kingdoms. Uh, Ready or not, here we go. Kingdom number one, a culture of lies. Look with me at James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Question number one, what is this kingdom like? Well, James describes it for us in verse 14 as one filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I love that phrase because it so tightly captures the heart of a society that is set in opposition to God. This phrase neatly paints a picture of resentful, bitter love for self and love for self-promotion. Now, it must be noted that jealousy and ambition are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, right? Um, In fact, God honors Phineas in Numbers chapter 25 for the great zeal or jealousy he had for defending and upholding God's name. And just a few verses later in James chapter 4, the writer will actually cite an Old Testament teaching that says, the Lord yearns jealously over the spirit that he was made to dwell in us. So if God can be jealous, and he is for us, 
then jealousy isn't the problem. And even ambition isn't all that bad. Uh, the great Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and church planner to ever live, says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, uh, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. If it weren't for a few ambitious people like William Wilberforce, we would still have the slave trade here today. If it weren't for the early church uh, being on the move and and, and emboldened by the Spirit of God to fulfill the Great Commission uh, to the ends of the earth, uh, we would still be back in Jerusalem. Uh, If it wasn't for Jen and Jay Jans and the Peñas and the Larsons, we would not be in this building or have our nonprofit. Thank God for the ambition of good and godly people. But all ambition is not good ambition. And not all jealousy is God-directed. No, the, the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that James describes as dog eat dog, everyone fighting for themselves, doing whatever they can to gain a leg up on the competition. Uh, if you need a visual, this is Mean Girls. Uh, this is Ivy League schools. Uh, this is finance firms downtown and Crips and Bloods in Park Hill. Uh, this is every uh, chest-beating, uh, nose-thumbing, uh, uh, puffed-up competition and rivalry you can imagine. And that sort of competition is understandable out there in the world. Whew. But it's out of place when it makes its way into the church. And if we're not on guard, these vicious vices can sneak their way into, James says in verse 14, the hidden corridor of our hearts. Oswald Smith, the Canadian pastor and a longtime friend of Billy Graham, once quipped, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Jesus would agree. In Matthew 12, 34, our Lord and Master, while condemning the hypocritical leaders of his own day, said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, in Matthew 15, 18 through 19, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Tell me, how on earth am I supposed to live my truth if my truth is soiled in lies? What in the world makes me think that I am such a reliable source? Every human heart, which is not yet born again by the power of the Spirit and renewed daily by the truth of God's Word, is susceptible to the kingdom of lies. Question number two, what about its source? Well, James says, such a kingdom is set on fire by hell itself. In verse 15, the apostle writes, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly. Everybody say earthly, unspiritual. Everybody say unspiritual and demonic. Everybody say demonic. In the verse prior, James modifies this statement by saying, you see this kingdom on full display whenever you see boasting and lying. Wow. So interesting that James would put boasting and lying hand in hand. Why is it that the half-brother of Jesus would say that these two vices always go together? Well, if this kingdom is fueled by hell itself, who is the most prideful, most arrogant, most boastful being in the universe? 
it's not our last president. It's not your ex-boyfriend. It's not even Kanye, Kim K, or Ellen DeGeneres. No, it is Satan himself. The one who thought he could usurp the rule and reign of God in heaven and was cast down to earth. The one who Jesus describes in John 8 as not standing in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and a father of lies. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And interestingly enough, Michael, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of who? Unbelievers. Isn't that fascinating? Those who are disobedient and unbelievers are the one who Satan has control over. But if we're being honest in the room today, I think all of us who have been a Christian for more than five and a half seconds know that the evil one can have influence over our lives as well. But it only happens when we hand it to him. Just like Adam and Eve, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual writer, would often say that our lives are led and our loves are shaped by five things. The choices we make, the stories we believe, the habits we practice, the people we embrace, and the places we call home. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Do it with God with the choices you make, the stories you believe, the habits you practice, the people you embrace, and the places you call home. This is Spiritual Formation 101. And I think that second one, the stories we believe, or maybe you want to say the stories we tell ourselves, have an outsized influence on shaping the kind of lives that we lead as Christian believers. Um, We talked about this back in the Genesis episode series, that the story you believe will shape the life you lead. And I'm telling you, The devil and his minions love to keep us in the dark. They love to lead with deception. They love to give you a story other than the story that God has for your life. In the words of God to Adam and Eve in the garden, who told you that you were naked? Let me ask you, what lie are you believing? Whose story are you believing today? That you're not good enough? that you're all alone, that no one really wants to help you, that you're the one who has to control and work and manipulate your future to be what you want it to be. Maybe you believe that God will not and cannot provide for you. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, the more that we give ownership to the devil to begin dictating the narrative of our life, and the more that we live out of that thing, our lives actually begin to be shaped and formed into a lie themselves. One of the verses we often quote in relation to this topic of truth-telling is Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 27. It talks about the importance of telling the truth, but doing so in a loving manner. We don't want to just put somebody on blast. We want to do it with a spirit of humility and kindness. I was studying that passage this week in preparation for this message, and I noticed that Paul puts the concept of truth-telling right next door to this phrase and give no foothold to the devil. Isn't that interesting? Come on, we got to know the truth. We got to speak the truth. And if we do, sooner or later, we will begin to live the truth, not just individually, but communally. 
Submit yourselves one another together to God. Resist the devil and he will flee in Jesus' name. It's as simple as that, friends. We have to claim the authority that we already have in Christ to overcome the lies of the evil one. But this will only happen once we have torn down the stronghold of deception. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Come on, friends, let me ask you, do you know that you have authority to overcome the lies of the evil one today? We are no longer slaves to fear. We are no longer enslaved to the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, we serve a new master now. Uh, Romans 8, 15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Come on, you got a new daddy now. We don't serve the father of lies. We serve our heavenly father, and who he says I am, I am. Question number three. Question number one, what's it like? Question two, what's its source? Question three, what is its outcome? Well, verse 16 says that this kind of kingdom creates disorder in every vile practice. The word disorder here is the same word used by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke to describe coming insurrections and tumults and wars at the end of the age when nation will rise up against nation. That's pretty wild. That whenever an individual or a community lives under the rule, the kingdom of lies, the inevitable outcome of that way of life is destruction on the level of Armageddon. Wow, that is wild. And if you've ever been part of a relationship or an organization or a family so dominated by bitter jealousy and prideful ambition, then you know firsthand that sort of carnage and wreckage is possible, and I do not envy you. Some of you have lived through this pain. This isn't just a theoretical idea. This is an experiential reality. You have seen what happens when liars lead, when the prideful are placed in positions of power, and it is not good. Thankfully, though, there is a different kingdom and a different king, under whose reign we may live. It is kingdom number two, a community of truth. We won't spend as much time here since everything the culture of lies is, the community of truth is not. Uh, what's it like, you ask? Well, rather than being characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, uh, this kingdom is characterized, verse 13 says, by wisdom and understanding. Uh, those two words speak to the, the highly specialized knowledge that belongs to uh, a world-class professional. Uh, think of like a college professor or a professional counselor. Uh, this is the type of skill and not just uh, knowledge, but kind of embodied understanding that these people have. But just because this knowledge is highly skilled, that doesn't mean you'll see the letters uh, PhD or LPC after their names. No, this sort of wisdom comes through the hard knocks of life and obedience to God's truth. These wise truth-tellers in our midst 
among us are often ordinary, unremarkable men and women who are so meek and mild that sadly they go unnoticed and unconsulted by the world around us. And yet, in a world fueled by competition, Jesus says, it's these people who one day will come out on top. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he actually promises that these people will one day inherit the earth. (laughs) Why? Perhaps because they're the only ones wise enough to show, not tell. (laughs) They demonstrate their good deeds rather than constantly updating their timelines for all to see. Their way of life is humble and attractive, embodied not in the human heart, but manifests in the Christian community. And we thank God for them. Well, what is the source of this kingdom, you say? Verse 17 says that a community of truth is sourced from heaven above and is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Unlike the vices that come from below, these virtues flow not from the world, the flesh, and the devil, but from the good, perfect, beautiful character of God above. Amen? These seven adjectives beautifully depict not just the character, but the source of a community committed to living God's truth, God's way. Uh, James describes it as pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Uh, If you know your Bibles, maybe you're starting to think of another list of virtues. That would be Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, This is the sort of thing that you don't strive and earn and manufacture. It is actually produced from its roots in God over time. And it's a beautiful thing for a community to behold and to protect. Well, what's its outcome, you ask? The outcome of this sort of kingdom, a community of truth, is righteousness and peace. Look down with me at verse 18. It says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's really fascinating that there's all these sort of connections here between Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 13, and as we've already said, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Uh, This is Jesus's magnum opus as he comes and begins his ministry in Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, uh, listen to this language. Uh, Listen how similar it sounds. And I almost wonder if the half-brother of Jesus had this in the back of his mind as he was pinning these words. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what's so fascinating, I got to geek out on you for just a minute, as you know I love to do is that this word for righteousness in James 3, as well as Matthew 5, could just as well be translated justice. It's the exact same word in Greek, righteousness and justice. They're two sides of the same gospel coin. So whenever we read, blessed are the peacemakers, a.k.a. those who are persecuted for justice's sake, I guess the passage is a little different tone to it, doesn't it? Uh, When we read in a harvest of justice is sown in peace by those who make peace, that sounds a little different. What might Jesus and James be saying to us today? I would argue that they're saying, no justice, no peace. (laughs) 
That's encouraging to me, brothers and sisters, because when Jesus and James call for peace, they aren't advocating for the pacification of wrongs done. Uh, They don't want the show to proceed as normal, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. No, no, they want justice right now. When do we want it? Right now. Where do we want it? Here. They want wrongs righted and crooked paths made straight. But unlike today's justice warriors, their solution is not to burn it all down. No, the kind of truth tellers that Jesus has in mind want justice and peace, restoration and righteousness. These people would rather begin a relational process of reconciliation than cancel anyone who goes against their values. And I know it may sound like I have an agenda here this morning as a white male in a position of power, but I assure you I am just preaching the word of God. So if you don't believe me, and if you won't believe James, maybe believe the words of African-American theologian Howard Thurman, who, uh, by the way, if you're going to read any book during Black History Month, and you should read a book about Black History during Black History Month, especially if you look like me, this is a great place to start, Jesus and the Disinherited. Howard Thurman says this, there must always be the confidence that the effect of truthfulness can be realized in the mind of the oppressor as well as the oppressed. There is no such substitute for such faith. Come on, friends, Jesus is the truth. Jesus came full of truth. Jesus spoke the truth to people in positions of power, and yet his communities are more concerned with producing a bumper crop of peace than trying to burn it all down to the ground. They are more concerned with offering peace as a solution to the oppressor as well as to the oppressed. Because if you're honest today, in your own story, you may be the victim, but in someone else's story, I promise you, you are the villain. And it's only when we understand, as Emmanuel preached so well a couple weeks ago, that we are both oppressor and oppressed, that we can be liberated to love and truth. And unlike cancel culture, communities of truth tellers are able to right wrongs and heal hearts. Cancel culture doesn't have the resources available to provide the, the rightness and the restoration that is needed for the life in the kingdom of God. That's our big idea this morning is that unlike cancel culture, communities of truth tellers can right wrongs and heal hearts. We have to have the capacity to do both, my friends. We tell the truth by pursuing righteousness and justice, peace and wholeness. And we do so because our king, the power of God, and the wisdom of God came down from heaven above to earth below, and guess what? He did not cancel you. Though your sins deserved, he actually didn't just not cancel you. He allowed himself to be canceled on the cross. The only one who was perfectly pure, perfectly peaceable, perfectly gentle, perfectly reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He perfectly secured peace with God for us through his blood shed on the cross. And as a result, we have already received the greatest harvest of righteousness we could ever imagine. Come on, church. The perfect one lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you deserved for your wrongs, for my wrongs, on the cross so that we could live forever with him. In my place, condemned, he stood. 
That's the greatest injustice of the universe. And yet it brought about righteousness for every single person who will place their faith in him. And until you understand that truth, (laughs) that God loves both the oppressor and the oppressed, you have not really begun to understand the heart of the Christian faith. Truth is a person, my friend. And in his dying breath on the cross, he created a culture of justice and peace. And by his grace, we can become a community of truth-telling Christians who right wrongs and heal hearts. So, what do we do with this truth today? I want to invite the music team up to the stage so we can respond in one last song this morning. I think there are several ways that we can respond to the Spirit of God's leading in our hearts and in our community today. Uh, But the first one that comes to mind for me is worship. It would be the height of arrogance to hear the truth of God's love for us in Christ this morning and not respond by falling down on our knees in worship. That's the only proper response to experiencing the truth of God. Uh, Secondly, some of us have been living a lie today. And you know it. You feel it. This morning, maybe you need the courage to confess your sins to God. And I would suggest a fellow brother or sister in Christ. In fact, James ends his letter by saying in chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Amen. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Let me tell you from personal experiences, few practices in Hunter Hambrick's life have so broken the power of the evil one over me like confessing my sin, my brokenness, my wrongdoing to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And I just want to tell you, God cannot heal what you hide. You got to bring it into the light. And we have a prayer team uh, full of jacked up folks just like you and me who stand ready and able and willing to help you experience the healing that your soul, our souls, so desperately need. So if you're on the prayer team this morning, I'll actually go ahead and invite you to make your way down to the front of the stage. And lastly, as they come, maybe you need compassion to confront. Maybe God's calling you to worship this morning could be calling you to confess your sin, or maybe, just maybe, you need to confront someone who has done you wrong. (laughs) This is a uh, risky decision to make, and it requires lots of prayer and wise counsel. And maybe right now isn't the appropriate moment to do that. Maybe you need to talk to somebody and receive uh, some wise counsel. I would encourage that. But I can promise you, that confronting that person in love does not pose as great a risk as continuing to live in a hostile ceasefire. Sooner or later, if that person or those people's ego and pride go unchecked, that relationship will blow up. Uh, As one of my wise mentors, Katie Larson, once said, the longer you wait to have the hard conversation, the more that relationship is at risk. That'll preach. There are a few kinder gifts we can give other people, especially those closest to you. And I say this as both the offender and the one offended. 
than to confront them in love and let them know what it's like to be on the other side of them. (laughs) The key, as Steve Cuss would say, is to say it without the heat, to do it from a place of love. So how do we respond today? I'd encourage you to worship wholeheartedly, confess courageously, confront lovingly. All three of these are painfully awkward and uncomfortable practices for us to do. But until we embrace these counter-cultural practices of truth-telling, our community will never become a people who can right wrongs and heal hearts. But by God's grace, we can.